quote the one and only Hunter Thompson, when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. And that's what we're going to talk about when we get right back. Hey everybody, James Ellis here. Welcome back to the Talent Cast. It is season two, which means we continue our long-form podcast audiobook book update. Yeah, those are all words. They all come together. They all make sense. Of Talent Chooses You, all of which brought to you by RecruitmentMarketing.com, the community for recruitment marketing professionals. Go take a look at RecruitmentMarketing.com. Go look at all the great content they have, and you go ahead and sign up for an Ask Me Anything. Why? Because you can ask me anything. If you love this kind of content, if you're really excited for Employer Brand, I highly recommend you subscribe to my newsletter. It's employerbrandheadlines.substack.com or employerbrand.news. You can sign up. It's free. It lands in your inbox every Monday morning to help get you sharp. Really just trying to be all about creating a million employer brand thinkers. So without any further ado, let's turn pro. At some point, you'll want to turn all of this knowledge that you've just accrued and collected from an interest into a job. Maybe you're a recruiter who sees the future and wants to play a bigger role. Maybe you're a marketer who wants to play in a different kind of sandbox. Maybe you're one of those rare birds who woke up one day and went, an employer brander, yes, that's what I want to be. It doesn't matter. The question is, are you sure? To put it clearly, only crazy people take this job. Why? Well, I can't think of another job where you have so much responsibility and so much expectation with so little actual authority. You're just not actually tasked to accomplish the mandates of elevating the brand to candidates. When they ask you to deliver mail, they give you a route. They give you a bag. When they ask you to code, they give you a computer. When they ask you to take somebody's blood, they give you needles. But not so with employer brand practitioners. Ours is a job of influence. To most eyes, even to our own biggest clients and prospects, it's very hard to see what we do and what the outcome of the work is. Now, don't get me wrong. The work is hard. The outcome is there. It's just not obvious. And when people ask me how I measure our impact, I always tell them, you know, ask them the question of, what's the ROI of taking a brisk walk every day? A walk doesn't actually get you stronger, doesn't build muscle, doesn't burn much fat. The things you usually do to measure your body probably won't shift much. And it might look a lot like maybe that nothing has changed. But if you do it every day, you're going to live 10 years longer. How's that for ROI? Businesses are addicted to instant gratification. They're accustomed to seeing immediate measurable improvements in minutes or days. How, How long does it take for therapy to work? How long does it take for the gym to work? Even if you go every day, it might be weeks, if not months, before you really notice real change. And beyond the way we manifest change, thinking and talking in those kinds of strange, metaphorical, and abstract ways is kind of a challenge. Bridging the gap between the brand and the aspects of the business that depend on the brand is how you're going to spend your time, all while having no authority to actually make the change happen. So are you sure you want to do this for a living? Okay, if so, here's your survival guide. Chapter 8, Tricks and Lessons Learned. This section is called How It All Goes Wrong. And as a bitter, cynical, black-hearted human being, and I know myself, I tend to see the worst in every situation. And I see all the different ways that something can fail. It'd be a mistake to pretend that following along with all these instructions and introductions leads you to some sort of automatic growth in your career, in your recruiting, or your business. And I am 
not going to say that. I'm not even going to near that. There are about a half a million ways all this smart thinking falls apart, sometimes in big ways, sometimes in small ways. And if you do part of this wrong, you, sad to say, could become a bit of a laughingstock within the branding community. Or maybe the whole project slowly loses momentum to the point where people quietly point it to it as a failure behind your back and never let you on to new projects because yours went nowhere. Well, let's be clear. Change is hard. If it was easy, you would have done it already. And to paraphrase, paraphrase a very wise, crazy person, employer branding isn't a weekend seminar. It isn't a project you check off your list. It isn't a tactic of the month. In order to make it work, in order to make a system-driven change across the entire organization to change perspectives and outcomes, in order to evolve, you have to integrate this thinking into everything you do forever. It's a little like losing weight or getting fit. You can't accomplish it in a window of time. To make real change and make it stick, it has to become your new reality. You need to stop eating donuts every day. You have to show up to the gym every day or three times a week, no matter what, forever. I'm sorry, but that's just reality. There's nothing you can do about it. So you might as well know about it walking in the door. So here are some of the bigger problems you're going to need to defend against to ensure success. This is not a comprehensive list, but hopefully it's going to help you see the different kinds of problems that could derail even the best plans. It's not enough to have the idea. It's not enough to launch the idea. It isn't even enough to manage the idea. You have to turn your idea into the company's idea and to help each person find their own place in the company's idea. So here's some things to look out for. No executive buy-in. Now, don't think of this as the most important problem to fix because I listed it first. It's not. But it's a good place to start because every employer brand or employee engagement needs buy-in from leadership and executives. First, because even though they have more equity and nice parking spots and better offices, they're also employees. And they should see this as a project they need to cheerlead and be a part of. Nothing saps employee morale like leadership playing the game of, we make the rules so there have to be special rules for us. If leadership wants the company to join in on this journey, leadership has to make the first step. Second, a change from the grassroots without executive buy-in is called an overthrow. When leadership says to go left and the staff goes right, the leadership isn't in charge. And you know what leadership hates? Not being in charge. If they get a whiff of insurrection or change, their first reaction is going to be to stomp it out like a spark in the grass to keep it from turning into a fire. You might say, Wait, this book is making it pretty clear how amazing and important employer brand thinking is to the health and growth of the company. Why would an executive stop that out? They're smart. Why wouldn't they see the value of moving forward? And that's a great question. First, it's very possible that your talking points and proof points will create its own buy-in. Great. Leadership will see the merits of your plan and get behind it and give it the resource it needs. But that does not happen often. Two things are far more common. One, the job of leadership is to make choices. It has to divvy up finite resources across a seemingly unending list of requests, only one of which is yours. You're competing for resources with project managers and product managers and people who have great product ideas and HR leaders looking to modernize systems and sales leadership looking to fund more leads. That list goes on and on. Every single request will be framed as, here's how to make the company grow. So your request isn't exactly special. Two, people aren't really rational 
don't care what the economists say. They aren't. They're emotional. They change. They're in, in change sparks emotion. A theme in this whole section, by the way, is that emotion is important, and it helps. You can use it to leverage actual movement. What if they fund your project and it doesn't work? What if you're not the right person to run it? What if you mess it up and you make the company look bad? If this was such a good idea, why didn't leadership come up with it? All of these are fear-based responses that you need to be prepared for. Now you have a couple of plays here. One, ask leadership to lead a new idea, but start small. A larger plan behind it maybe that expands over time, but starting at a pilot level. If you walk in and ask leadership for 300,000 this year to build this thing out, you're competing against a lot of other very large requests and many of whom have much more obvious ROI. Chances are those players are going to be better connected politically and will find a way to freeze you out of the conversation and keep them for themselves. Instead, ask for nothing. Well, I mean, ask for your time. They already pay that, so, you know, use that time to start solving these problems. That way you won't ask them for a huge pile of money, but instead ask for a year of freedom and time to prove the point, to show what can be done with just one person. And that's a trick that you're going to get a lot of help from a lot of other people. Don't worry. It, it will kind of level up, but just present it as a super low quote-unquote cost ask. It's pretty meager. It's hard to reject that. It minimizes fear. I call this strategy the stone soup strategy. It comes from an old story of a miser who hates spending money, but when the miser, and wait, why don't we use the word miser anymore? I don't know. But the miser walked past a woman, and it's a fable, so forgive the gender roles here. The woman was cooking soup, and it smelled delicious. She offered to teach him how to make it, and he refused, assuming that the ingredients would be expensive. Again, he's a miser. But she says, no, 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 it's stone soup. It only requires one stone. He just goes, what? No way. The soup smells so good. But if it only costs a stone, let's do it. So she dropped a stone in the pot of water and pretended it smelled good. You know, she said, this would be even better if we had maybe an old carrot to throw in. And the miser says, oh, well, you know what? I have an old carrot later on. I'll go get it for you. And he brought back a shriveled old carrot and she tossed it in. And then she says, you know, I bet this would be even better if we had an onion. And he thinks, oh, I have one of those. And bit by bit, the woman makes soup, and the miser never realizes what's happening. Just an idea. Two, ask leadership to get behind an idea that is taking root and fuel the opportunity that's right in front of them. As, an, as an, the idea is in its infancy, this is when leadership can really score points by getting in front of it. The value to them is that they get to claim credit for an idea that was already working and more credit for supporting it with more resources. If your project looks like a winner, the fear is going to be low. You're, you have to be careful, though, to not overplay your hand. If you show that this project is already growing and will likely grow without their support, you're going to bruise egos and no one want to help. But if you can suggest that this nascent idea is on the precipice of failure, if not for their necessary and valuable intervention, it gives them a chance to feel like a hero without putting their political credit at risk. It's win-win. And only, you know, a little manipulative, but hopefully in a good way. Three, ask leadership what you should do to make this happen because they like to feel smart and know lots of things and love it when people need their help. This one sounds the most manipulative, but it isn't. Everyone likes to feel like they're adding value, so build a project that begs for help to kick, you know, to kick it off. You will create allies on the inside 
who will support that project. And yeah, maybe it feels like their project, but we'll talk about taking credit a little bit later on. You don't have to come on, come in like an idiot asking for help on how to do your own job. That's not what we're talking about. Instead, set up the problem, give them half the solution, you know, the half you can control, and puts the ball in their court, so to speak, giving them the chance to determine their level of involvement. They might tell you to continue in your work, that things are moving in the right direction, or they may help you find money and resources to make it go big. Either way, they helped, meaning that they have a little skin in the game. And in order to ensure that their choice was the right one, they'll be far more inclined to find more resources down the road as you need them. They will be an executive sponsor of your big idea. Ultimately, the worst case goal is to get them to commit to not obstructing the change. You can do a lot of great impactful work under the radar, but not if they're working hard to stop on you. So even if you don't get their help, figure out how to get their commitment to let the work continue. Maybe at the end of your pitch, as you realize it's not going how you want, you say, what if you give me another six months or a year to cultivate this idea on my own and bring it back when it's got more legs? Would that be something you'd agree to? That gets a commitment to wait and see, and that gets you a chance to pitch it again later on. So if you've got employer leadership buy-in, you've got a lot more options and choices on how to leverage that buy-in, and we'll talk about that later on. Next big mistake, no marketing or comms buy-in. Now, no matter how you slice it, what you're doing is a kind of marketing. It isn't exactly the same kind of marketing that your marketing and comms teams are doing, but it definitely connects to their world. Launching an employer project without their buy-in is like starting to sell a new product for the company but not talking to product development and the sales teams first. There's no way of denying that there's often been a long-standing, uncollaborative, and sometimes antagonistic relationship between these teams and the employer brand. Most of it comes from an unwillingness by both sides to see how they are the same and discuss the ways they're different. For example, marketing probably owns all your commercial ads, your TV spots, your banner ads, your in-kind spots on podcasts, your branded content, your images, your video, whatever. That's their job, to put out a consistent message to potential buyers about the product and the virtues of buying it. If you go and launch a banner ad campaign about why yours is a pretty company, cool company to work for, it might get seen by the same audiences they're trying to reach. But since they didn't build or manage your ad, they can't be sure it's consistent with what they're trying to do. Doing your job might be seen as potentially undercutting their message to consumers. And you're not going to make a lot of friends if they see you that way. Now look at your inter internal comms team. Their mandate is to communicate to the staff what the staff needs to know. And here you come communicating how to advocate. Referral programs, asking them to write testimonials, starting videos, whatever. Their team has a direct line to the executive team as they are likely the voice of the executive team to the rest of the company. And here you are muddying the waters. Again, Dale Carnegie would say it's not the best way to make friends and influence people. You need both of these teams buy in to, in order to get things done. And for the most part, a lot of talking points and strategies will be very much the same as when you talk to leadership with one major difference. The executives team, their job is to distribute resources so that when you ask for money, attention, and time, you are taking it away from someone else. It's a zero-sum game. But in this space, you aren't asking to take anything away from them. You just need to show how your work actually supports their work. As marketing is trying to connect with a buying audience, they have a very, often anyway, a product-first mentality. That is, they, it's all about, hey, look at this cool thing as a means of starting that conversation. 
Now, what's been interesting in the last few years is that when companies have a major PR crisis, and I can name a couple, you know, Uber screaming in a, you know, and they're screaming CEO, uh, Wells Fargo making mystery accounts, Papa John's being, ugh, let's not talk about that. They often respond, the companies do, with an employer brand focused campaign to try and mitigate the damage. They show off the employees doing great jobs, providing goods and services with a smile. Their staff becomes the face of the brand instead of the logo or the product or the CEO. Now, I'm not going to wait until a company's making unpleasant headlines to jump in and offer to help. Instead, I'd suggest to marketing that there's a lot of precedent to leveraging the staff to support a marketing message. In fact, good employer branding actually leads to sales. And there's Obviously, the very famous Verizon study where bad candidate experience led to people canceling the Verizon accounts, and you can tap into that, and there have been others since then, but ultimately, you're there to give more reasons for people to feel good about the brand, and that is something marketing can get behind. Take that one step further and say that you're looking forward to not just building your brand, because that's not what you're there to do, but to build it under the existing brand umbrella, which they own. The best way to make that clear is to ask them to teach you about their brand architecture. What's the mission? What's the values? What are the pillars? What's the value proposition? Yeah, some of that stuff you know, but you got to sit in on these meetings. You got to listen with a beginner's mind. You got to show them that you're invested in their success. Absorb their ideas that are second nature to them, even if they don't always fit what you're trying to do. Once you understand their world, and have invested in building a relationship with them, you're gonna have a chance to carve out a space for yourself. Here's an example of how. If they show you a brand architecture that establishes a mission-driven company with pillars and values and value propositions to the customers, lots of structure, means of communication to the customer and the potential customer, great. As nicely as you can, ask them how much of this applies to someone looking to invest in the company. An investor is investing in the brand and the future of the company. So the brand architecture has to work for the investor as much as it does for the consumer. Look for an opportunity to establish that the structure makes sense, but at the value proposition level, the value proposition to the consumer and the investor has to be different, correct? Great. Now, can we do the same thing about potential candidates? It's a delicate conversation, but you're using a little bit of brand jujitsu to take the strength of their structure and not use it and, you know, to keep from using it as a weapon against you. You know, when they say things like, we've already figured this stuff out, so we don't need you to be a part of this. But turn it into something you get to leverage too, where we get to say, great, so if I build out an EVP that aligns with and lives within this existing brand structure, it won't be dissonant, but in fact will support what you're doing when you talk to the customer, is that good for you? This doesn't happen in a 30-minute meeting, I promise. In fact, it's going to feel like a very slow process, maybe spanning weeks or months. Your goal is to build trust, to show that you aren't looking to go rogue and strike out on your own building your own brand, but instead tapping into technically new audiences to use their tried and tested structures to engage them. It makes them the hero and allows you to still do great work because your brand and their brand are the same brand.
the Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast. The same holds true for comms, only instead of it, it tapping into their brand architecture, you need to show that you're going to abide by their rules and processes, right? That your success begets engaged employees who will actually listen to the comms team. Most comm teams live in a world where they're expected to communicate to staff, but that most staff either stopped listening or only listening when they're speaking as if they are the CEO, right? I mean, when was the last time your comms team said something interesting and compelling per se? Right, maybe when you announce a policy, okay, everybody has to know the policy, but the content's never been exactly exciting. I mean, when's the last time they said something so interesting that you'd stop watching a Drake video to actually listen? The comms team passes down announcements and changes from leadership, but to but pretty much as the voice of leadership. And that means there's no room for a lot of personality or fun or flexibility or misunderstanding. The comms team isn't there to be misinterpreted. They can't be. Their job is based on being specific, on being very, very, very precise. And that's why great comms people tend to be half writers and half lawyers, trying to weed out any language that could possibly be misconstrued. Live in that world long enough and you'll build up a callus and you'll work under the assumption that no one cares about what you have to say or that it doesn't matter how you say it so long as you're accurate with it, people will be forced to listen to it. And here you are engaging staff, trying to get them to play a role in your company's growth, showing them how their spirit helps everyone do your job well, and you'll help close the gap between comms, who has to be clear, and staff, who needs to be to understand what leadership is saying. Now, everyone's experience is going to be different, so don't expect comms teams to jump in and help you. Come to them from a more supplicant position, that you want to learn their rules so that you can abide by them. Show them that your first small ideas on how to engage staff and then ask their opinions on how they could help or what you could do to be more aligned with them. And over time, they're going to start to see employer brand not only as a supportive tool within their toolkit, but as a way of having more fun and engaging staff without always having to be straight up the voice of management all the time. The next mistake is no staff buy-in. And this is probably the biggest hurdle depending on the company you work for. In fact, 90% of your time as an employer brand evangelist or a manager is really spent fostering engagement within the staff and then directing to where you want that attention and engagement to go, where it's going to do the most good. You're a firefighter and the staff engagement is the water. You don't put fires out so much as point the hose in the direction where the water is going to do the most good. All of your best ideas need to start with a realistic testing of the current level of engagement. Great ideas will never ever turn on turning disengaged staff into an engaged one. It just doesn't work that way. It can't be done. It's like trying to lose 20 pounds or learn the violin in a week. That kind of change takes time, which isn't a function of patience as it is a willingness to remove self-deception from your eyes. It's 100% human to think that the work you do makes an impact, to give yourself the benefit of the doubt, to, to make the leap that you're, if you're sweating, you must be doing something good. But very often, that's a case of self-deception. In order to motivate ourselves as we slog through work, where impact can be, well, far away, we have to deceive ourselves 
we tell ourselves that someone notices, that we're making change happen, that input, input drives output. It's a great myth to tap into when you're having a really bad day to keep you from giving up. And I support wholly, wholeheartedly using it like a cup of coffee when you need a quick pick-me-up. But relying on it as truth, it's going to get you in trouble. Assuming or pretending you're making an obvious difference is a drug that, <laughs> on which we can become very addicted. That's why you need to start every campaign or entire employer brand project by taking an honest measurement or assessment of where things stand right now. If you've ever lost weight, one of the hardest things to do is stand on the scale on day one to collect that baseline measurement. Whatever that number is, it's probably embarrassing. It's a testament that you weren't able to put down the donut. It's a little shameful. And I would bet that it's the one moment that keeps most people from making a commitment to their health. They just want to deceive themselves that it's not that bad to let themselves off the hook, right, from previous choices and just keep going about how things have been going. Ironically, if you can learn to swallow the pain of establishing that baseline number, it itself becomes fuel for doing amazing work. That first weigh-in may be painful, but that pain drives action. And then action leads to those first initial successes. Who cares if it's water weight when you can see the scale drop four pounds that first week? It's an endorphin hit that keeps you on track for deeper success down the road, especially when that road gets bumpy. The same is true for engagement baseline. Only 40% of your staff fill out the monthly pulse survey. Only 55% of the staff completed an annual engagement survey. Comms emails have a 20-some percent open rate. Only 7% of all hires are referrals. Less than 2% of staff even use the hashtag or share corporate social posts. Yikes. But you know what? Your job is to move that number up. And when the number's that bad, well, there's a lot more room to make impact. Knowing the baseline keeps you from deluding yourself as you launch a new program or campaign. It reminds you to start small and look for those small wins you can build on. The fastest way to fail is to try and launch a company evolution or evolving program at a company where engagement is super low. Your bosses and peers will see the big launch because you know you work for them and next to them, but then they see how little change results. It destroys your credibility. Even when you're doing the right thing, you're not making the kind of lasting change that matters. But if you know your baseline, you can establish wins, even for small projects. Your last email asking recruiters and HRBPs to retweet something only got a 20% open rate? That's brutal. But if you knew it was a 15% open rate previously, that's a 33% growth. Do it again. The other secret to employee buy-in is not to build too many rules into your project. The funny thing about employer brand is that you're kind of telling people who they are and what they show up to work for. If you do your research and you decide that your brand position is all about, for example, innovation, you are telling employees that the reason they get out of bed to work every morning at this company is because of their love of innovation, their willingness to try new things, the, the sense of building a brand new future. And while that may be true, do you think most staff see themselves that way? Just because that's the hook you'll use to bring people in, what happens when existing staff see it and say, wait, is that why I show up? Now, I'm not asking if it's true or not, but I'm asking to ask yourself how strange it would be to get that information. If someone walked up to you and said, hey, you're a 30-something man of Germanic descent and a long track record of enjoying Taylor Swift songs, the question isn't, were they right? The question is really, why would anyone tell me that? So your role is not to tell staff who they are, but instead to provide them with the materials 
to project the brand to the world and to allow those materials to shape their perceptions over time. If you joined a nonprofit, for example, in order to do some social good, you might be willing to take a nominal pay cut. And sure, the recruiting process makes it very clear that people here are willing to take a small pay cut because that's how they do good, right? It's that sense of people like us do things like this. It should be pretty clear. And along with that idea, you won't be surprised to discover that your work issue laptop is a generation behind. You might discover that it's customary to print on the back of old documents to save paper. You won't be shocked that everyone volunteers on their off hours to go to semi-related events for the common good. Even if you weren't told that people take a pay cut, all those other things would lead you to think that people are here to work hard to achieve that common good, whatever that good might be. And the context dictates the motivation, or at least the people's perception of that motivation. So if you know that position, build materials that support that position without stating it directly. If your position is driven by empowerment, tell stories about people who build things, who taught themselves a new skill, who ended up doing something cool. You talk about the choices they make in service of that goal without, again, stating the goal. You might make stickers, for example, and share them that have a tagline about how people own their job. You can surround them with ideas, and over time, they will create that idea in their own mind. Go watch like Inception to see how people can think about planting ideas in other people's minds. It's got to feel organic rather than someone telling you. That's not how people think. The next big mistake, no defined metrics. Do I really need to be the 5,000th writer to intone the what gets measured is what matters, right? I mean, maybe I do. So I guess I did. <laughs> but the lesson's real, right? One of the fastest ways to get something done is to apply some KPIs and measure it and publish the results. If you can attach a bonus to a certain outcome, then that process goes even faster, sometimes to the point of management gaming the system to achieve the letter of the result without actually achieving the spirit of it. But beyond that starting baseline, if you want employer brand to be taken seriously, you need to establish your own metrics that you're going to be measured against. Otherwise, you're just, you know, fluff. You're just window dressing. This is a huge opportunity for you to establish credibility. People who show you their own metrics are saying they aren't scared of a little good faith scrutiny and determine where you want to focus your efforts in a space where almost any work can be said to support or impact the employer brand. You need to define your own metrics. I will not tell you what to do, but when I look at them, I think of them in three major categories, sentiment, reach, and recruiting. What do people feel about you and why do they feel that way? What fuels that emotion? How often do you have a chance to change those people's emotions? How are they captured? On what channels are those emotions shared with the world? These are the kind of questions that support your understanding of sentiment. Now, don't get trapped in the monometric of do people see you as a great place to work? Because as we've seen, that answer has as much to do with the person as the company, right? It doesn't work that way. The DMV employee may love working at the DMV but sees Google as a horrible place to work because it doesn't support their motivations and vice versa. So when you're measuring sentiment, stay focused. When people say you aren't a great place to work, what are they really saying? Where did that sense come from? Are they the audience that you're trying to reach or are they not just good fits? Who are they talking to? How long do their opinions resonate in the world? Things like glass door ratings try to be a one-stop shopping for sentiment, and plenty of people take those things seriously, though I don't know that you should. 
They're really focused on a good-bad model of business without getting too deep into the why. It's a singular kind of vector. It doesn't show any nuance or any information. I mean, sure, it's worth measuring in many cases, but you want to see the factors that drive it rather than the rating itself. Plenty of companies with objectively bad or mediocre ratings are really still able to hire well, so don't limit your thinking here. Reach. How many people are going to see this opinion or this sentiment? How many people are in the various stages of the funnel? How many people are connected to our social media platforms? How many people are absorbing the brand messages right now? Are they active? Are they passive? Where are those messages coming from? How much influence over them do you have? How much web traffic are you getting? How many views from our outside content do we have? If the question's a sentiment is measuring a kind, the kinds of materials that people are building their bird's nests from, the question of reach is about understanding how readily available those materials are. You might consider things like how many email addresses you have that you can ping, or how many social media followers you have, or how many people are opening your emails or clicking into content or traffic to your site or third-party recruiting platforms. But there are a lot more metrics to reach than sentiment. And a million people hearing, uh, hearing bad things is worse than 10 people hearing amazing things. So you can't evaluate each in a vacuum. So one of the questions I dread is, how strong is our employer brand? The question is usually uttered by some well-meaning middle manager who, after spent a half an hour kind of describing the value and the power of employer branding in their own work and in their own hiring, and what we're doing to strengthen that brand. Now, unlike raw sales figures or sheer numbers of downloads, there's no strict metric for employer brand. In fact, there's no discrete measurement for employer branding at all. You can't assign a brand a 7.2, right? You, it doesn't work that way. What you can do is show the relative strength of the brand against another company. For example, if you found yourself competing against another company for talent, you'd want to know which brand is stronger and in what way. This is when a simple kind of sentiment reach graph makes things clear to whoever you're talking with. This is very visual, but I'm going to try and describe it. Start by drawing draw an XY graph. Just have a zero point in the bottom left-hand corner, and the X graph is the, or the X line is the horizontal one, and then you draw a line straight up from that dot, and that's the Y axis, right? On the horizontal one, call it reach. On the, you know, vertical one, call it sentiment. Once you have that, draw it out in front of the person. It really does help kind of describe what's going on. So what you do is you identify the person you're trying to reach and look at their stuff, their glass door reviews, their job postings, their social media, third-party content, third-party sites, whatever. What is the overall sentiment? Is it positive? Is it weak? Is it all over the place? Don't try and turn it into like a math problem. It's not about being exact. You're just going to assign a mark of how much positive sentiment you see coming in clean. You know, kind of like a candidate would. Put a mark on the sentiment line to mark that competitor. For, you know, you may just say, put it in the middle. It's safe. And do the same with reach. Look at your website traffic. Or look at the, or look at the website traffic, the number of LinkedIn followers, the social sharing, how they rank for job postings on Indeed or Google for jobs. Look at all the ways you can measure reach and collect that information and give them, assign them kind of a, a spot on the graph. Now, do the same on your own, for your own company. Be 100% honest. Be open to what you're seeing. Don't try and spin it. Don't try and filter it. Try to keep things as close to apples to apples if you can. If you have access to internal data, don't use it because you don't have access to their internal data. It's not about the score. It's about relative weakness or strength, 
right? You're comparing the two. So when you do that, and you can do it against multiple competitors, you get these rectangles. And in some spots, maybe it turns out your reach is great, but your sentiment isn't great. And you're competing at someone with decent on both, or not great reach, but great sentiment. Your relative brand strength is a function of the total area of the box you're creating based on that graph. The bigger the box, the stronger the brand, generally. And at a glance, you can see if your brand is relying too much on reach because you've got a strong ad budget or because of the size of the company or because your product's really well known, whatever, you've got to see where that value is coming from. And then you learn to not rely on it. You need to focus on sentiment programs, right? Advocacy, social media engagement, right? Getting people to leave better reviews, getting your, your teams to talk more. That's how you're going to establish a stronger brand and beat those other companies. Recruiting bucket. Because recruiters are tasked with engaging and attracting talent, they are your best allies to understand, shape, and communicate your brand to the world. And as most people see the employer brand as a means by which they improve hiring and recruiting, bake your work with them into their metrics. And based on what you've learned here so far, you're going to be able to evaluate and write even better outreach emails than most recruiters can. It's not that they don't know, it's just that their metrics tend to focus on quantity over quality, right? They, they want to know that they reached out to 100 people instead of 5 people. They don't always look at the total number of people who responded. You can build content for them to share. Whether it's in mass or in, in the specific, you can talk to them and hear what's resonating and who, what isn't. Work with them directly. You provide a different kind of perspective on their role that they don't have. They're in, they're in the weeds. Right? They're super focused, hyper focused on making sure this job gets filled or this task gets done. You get to live a little higher up at 20,000, 30,000 feet to see a bigger picture. And it gives you a chance to leverage materials, content, what have you, to help them do their job better. Without recruiters, most employer brand folks absolutely founder. So show them that your interests align with their interests and build metrics that show how your work makes their lives easier. Here's a list of initial projects designed to make recruiters' lives easier that you can use to build stronger relationships. Launch the new job posting project, and we've talked about that. Review their outreach emails and give them some suggestions or some headline or subject line suggestions, things that will likely get more open rates. Launch an internal recruiting newsletter to suggest ways that you, they can use your content to more effectively attract and close talent. Write up a list of shared responsibilities between recruiting and the hiring manager. Once completed, recruiters can bring it to every intake meeting to go over to establish some structure and build their credibility. Offer to help the most problematic hiring manager. Ask for their most painful customers and get better with them by helping them interview better or train better or source better or run some workshops with them. Attend weekly recruiting meetings. Listen to their problems. Listen to their challenges. Identify the biggest and toughest hiring needs coming down the pipe and start and offer to write some content around that to kind of get some interest aware, you know, early on. How you help recruiting isn't something you can really measure, but if you have a pre-established, you know, those buckets and you have it with your boss, they're going to see that the value of you having a well-trained and supported army of recruiters helps you get the message out in a hurry. Next big mistake, no celebration. Is a victory still a victory if you don't bother to celebrate it? If, if you don't even celebrate, how do you even know you've had a victory? The work and employer brand is generally pretty subtle. 
We nudge people in the right direction. We spark ideas and allow them to kind of make decisions on their own. We influence, we encourage, which means that to many, our work isn't really work. Ours is a job of slow-moving boulders. We don't have one boulder to move, we have dozens. And every day, we come in and nudge the boulders each forward maybe half an inch, one after the other after the other. And at the end of the day, we've pushed each one a smidge forward and then we go home and call it a successful day. The next day, we do it again. Now, every once in a while, one of those boulders lands where it's supposed to, right? It smacks into place and we can call that job done. Generally, we then add one or two new jobs and repeat, but that's the job. If this sounds Sisyphean to you, or Sisyphean, or Sisyphean, I don't know how to pronounce that, I, I can see why. But our job is to change systems that turn massive boats. Our work doesn't move the stock price directly. It doesn't create the new killer product feature. It never makes a sale happen. At its most basic, our work help, helps attract people and hire the people who make those things happen. So it's easy to forget to celebrate. But I'm gonna warn you right now, our work is so subtle that it demands a celebration. We need to do a little victory lap when the glass door hits you know, a certain number. We need to ring a bell when our new site launches and another when it hits 100,000 views. We need to send the mention of our work to industry publications and to our bosses and to other recruiting leaders. Gonna be in a podcast? Tell people. Write, write a blog about your work? Market it internally. If you don't, you're in danger of being taken for granted. And I spent a lot of time in roles where everyone else thought they knew how to do my job, not just in this one. You know, I've been designer, I've worked in social media, I've worked in inbound marketing, and to be honest, most people think it's fairly straightforward work and that they know how to do it better than I do. The fact that they read an article once on how to encourage people to apply gives them license to assume they know. Don't fight them, make them allies. Show them that your wins and ask them to help make new ones. Everyone wants to be on the winning team to the point where it's a well-known phenomenon called the bandwagon effect. So showcase your successes and invite them to play a part. Remember, your job isn't to win, but to cultivate an environment where wins happen, even without your obvious and direct intervention. Celebrating wins is a big part of that. And lastly, at some point you're gonna want leadership to help you out. Celebrating your wins means telling your boss about the wins so that they can tell their bosses about your wins, so that they can claim a little victory. They can claim, claim a little credit. Feed them enough wins, and eventually, you will be welcome in any meeting and allowed to pitch any idea. And that is a win. The next big mistake, jumping to budget conversations. Anyone who says you need a budget to be successful with your employer brand is clearly selling you something. Again, I used to do that for a living. Now, I'm not saying money can't help, Oh, absolutely can. No question. It absolutely makes it easier. But I'm saying you'd be smart to reject any kind of money offered for as long as you can because money always comes with strings. It comes with expectations of a kind of success based on that money, not based on your strategy. If culture eats strategy for breakfast, budgets determine how hungry they can be. So here's a list of requires no money whatsoever of things that you can be doing to show some wins. You've got email, you've got phone calls, you've got team chat tools, you've got video calls if your company's distributed. You've got survey tools, some of them are free, some of them you pay for. You've got your own career site. Change some pictures, change the text, add a little HTML, make some design changes for free. Make some posters. Oh, I'm sorry, what? You don't have Illustrator or Photoshop? Get some Canva, get some Figma, I don't care. And let's be fair, you got a printer? 
dry erase markers on whiteboards. Honestly, most of like 70% of all office vertical spaces have writable and visible, so use them. Glass, windows, walls, whatever. Draw on them, write on them. Use your intranet, use your HRIS system, recruiter outreach emails, in-mails, job postings, third-party websites, medium, YouTube, social media, video, podcasting. Again, if you use your phone, save it to a free SoundCloud account. Onboarding process. I mean, my goodness. There's so many things that you can be doing and not a single one of them costs a dime. It, it should be a rule that you can't ask for more than $1,000 until you've leveraged most of that above list. The rule actually helps you because it creates dozens of little wins that help you build your case that you can manage a bigger budget and show ROI, right? Imagine if you launch a, ch a channel using one of these free tools and it makes a difference and they say, oh wow, it shortened our time to fill by two days. And then you say, I wonder what I could do with $100,000. That was free. In the process of launching and using all these channels, you're gonna end up having to define a clear position, create some compelling calls to action, and test a whole lot of talking points to see what works and what doesn't. It's like learning to drive or training to drive on a video game and crashing the car a million ways in ways that don't scare anybody or hurt anybody. That you have to do before you can prove that you can drive on a test track. And when you can do that, that's when you ask for the keys. It's not even a comprehensive look, list. Look at your company and see what resources naturally exist. I've been in places where they're already paying for a third-party web host, right? I just got an account for free. I installed WordPress for free and I designed a, an overlay tool, cost 85 bucks, that helped me design things. I started building profiles of staff. Okay, yeah, I got the design team to help me polish the look and feel and that was free. They were just friends because I profiled some of them. Yeah, I got some help from the editorial team to get headshots as I needed them. And by the way, I made profiles of them so that they would feel special. Yeah, I asked people to be the first profiles. Who They were people I knew. They were already friends of mine. They were already advocates for my work. But over time, that's how you build a 100,000 visit website in a year for less than $100. You just use what's available. I know that's what I did at Groupon. I spent $400 my first year. If you work at a place that builds mobile apps, ask for help to build a mobile storytelling tool. If you work at a packaging facility, work with the packaging to work at packaging to tell employee stories and have them printed right on the boxes or the tape. If you work in a place where everybody spends all day in different locations, ask them to send you cool pics from where they are. Give them a, a library of Zoom backgrounds. Once you do that, Asking for money is a lot easier because you now have a track record. You can be shown that you've, you, you can do a lot with nothing. You don't look greedy, but suddenly your needs align to the business needs, making you a very safe bet. Next big mistake, making it all about you. I left this one to last because it's the scary one. Yeah, that's right. Far scarier than pitching to the CEO or rejecting your own self-deception. That scary thing, it's your ego. I owned the global employer brand for Groupon for 18 months, and in that time, we made some pretty huge strides. We turned a brand that was not attracting top-tier talent into the number one employer brand in Chicago. A lot of what I tested and learned in that time are on these pages. Hey, AJ, hey, John, you're here. Take a bow. You did a lot of this work. We built like 400 employee profiles for the People site, but I never built one about myself. We highlighted success stories from all over the company on social media but never our own. 
you won't find my name or my picture or my video anywhere on their sites because I was always the one behind the camera or holding the phone in many cases, right? I wrote glowing stories about other teams and other managers and other offices. I raved anonymously about the culture and the office space. But you're not going to see my name on any of it. My thinking is we don't take our bows publicly. We celebrate our victories internally, right? You tell your boss. You share with your recruiters. You share with your localized teams. You can show how you did good. But I did not want anyone to think I was building this brand for my benefit. It is always their brand. I'm only here to facilitate its growth. It's like being a trainer at a gym. The person lifting the weights should command all the attention and all the kudos. The trainer is just kind of off to the side applauding. When I owned the brand, there was always someone else at the company tasked with elevating the brand in their space, right? independent of my work. It was crystal clear how their focus on promoting themselves instead of promoting the brand leached their credibility over time to the point where few people took them seriously. Sure, I'm, I made certain that my boss and, and her boss had all sorts of data points on how we were doing great work and how we were making impact. I, I forced myself to take some victory laps. I knew that I needed their help long term to keep things moving in the right direction. But my position of never letting the employer brand be the James show or whoever you are made it easier to show up in other teams' meetings. It suggested that I showed up to help them promote themselves. It was never about me. It was always about them, and I highly recommend embracing it as a strategy. All right, that was a huge episode of lots of ways you're going to make mistakes. You know what's fun about next week? We're going to talk about nothing but great ideas. We'll see you then. Bye. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts.